zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Eyes of a Stranger, released March 27, 1981. It was written by Ron Kurz, credited as Mark Jackson for some reason, with uncredited work from Eric L. Bloom, directed by Ken Whiterhorn, and released by Warner Brothers. The film was produced by Georgetown Productions, best known for producing the first Friday the 13th film the year before. This film did not recreate that success, so the next four Georgetown Productions were all Friday the 13th sequels. This was their only non-Friday the 13th film. (laughs) This was originally intended to be more of a thriller than a slasher, but as money from Friday the 13th kept pouring in, the decision was made to adjust the script and reshoot some of it to change the tone. The film shot in Miami for six weeks in the spring of 1980. Jennifer Jason Leigh was apparently flown in last minute to replace an actress who had already begun filming. The script called for two identical but mirrored apartments, and when they could not be found, the first was simply redressed and flipped in post. The film's original gory cut had to be edited to bring down the rating to R, but it still incurred a backlash from feminist groups. Shout Factory has a Blu-ray dropping in May of this year, May 18th curious what more gore was in there before i mean there's not a lot in there now i think it's actually been put back together the cut that we saw oh okay um but i think that they took out a decapitation and they took out uh other blood effects but there's like you said there's really not a lot it's not a lot it's not bad we start on a beach somewhere as a photographer moves around taking nature photographs eventually he stumbles upon a woman's body under the water her clothes have been torn off and there's a belt tied tight around her neck We fade to a teleprompter in a newsroom where a reporter announces that the body was discovered this morning by a wildlife photographer in a mangrove swamp of Key Biscayne. After the report, she throws it to Jane Harris, the anchorwoman at the news desk, who adds that anyone who has any information should contact the authorities. Her co-anchor tries to move on to the next story, but Jane interrupts to reiterate the seriousness of the string of killings. They throw it to a wacky weatherman, and we cut from the weatherman, to a TV tuned into this broadcast in a bar, bartender Al warns a waitress to be careful on her way home tonight. She tells him if she can handle this place, she should be fine. Later that night, on her way home, she is immediately being followed by a figure in all black. Yeah, I've learned to always, always, regardless of how stupid you feel, except Mm -hmm. when somebody offers to, like, walk you to your car. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't like walking anywhere at night and and <laughs> like I'm a guy, and yeah. I know that I'm not trying to make it seem like one is better than the other or not. But it's like, no, don't walk anywhere alone at night, people. Yeah, yeah. I get really uncomfortable when I'm alone, so I try and find like the closest woman to just follow around <laughs> to make me feel comfortable. Well, I remember when I was working in Hollywood, they like would frequently because I would get out late, like you know, I'd get out at like a ten o'clock shift or something like that, and. Um, I would, you know, they, they started offering me walk, somebody to walk me to my car. And I'm like, I wasn't scared to go to my car until, until you guys you started said offering yeah. to walk me to my car. And now I'm a little freaked out. Yeah. 
Uh, I was always terrified uh, in broad daylight making the cash drops for Blockbuster. Yeah. Or I had to like drive to my by myself to the bank and then take that long walk from my car to the bank deposit box with like a couple grand in, in my hand. I was like, they know that we do this every single day. Yeah. Anyone wow. could just come in here and grab me. They didn't know that until you said it. Yeah. Well, yeah now, now people are going to park the outside the blockbuster. <laughs> get hit. Oh, the last man. blockbuster. They really didn't have just like a, a safe to drop it in? No. They did, we, but when had... it gets to a certain amount, then you have to take it to the bank. Yeah. Oh, okay. I guess I, I, I only worked one retail job ever, and we just, you know, you just put the money away in the and safe. And I, I don't think that, that, what was that makeup place called? Sally's. Sally's. I don't think it did the kind of business no. that Blockbuster <laughs> did in a day. Certainly not. And Blockbuster was also too cheap to, to have more than one person open the store before actual open to the customers. That's true. But to be, yeah, but anyways, back to, back to the film. <laughs> Walking to your car alone at night is a terrifying thing, especially for ladies. I'm so sure. I, I just want to keep pointing this out as we go through this movie because- a lot of these scenes actually really got to me. Yeah. I don't know if they had the same effect on you. Yeah. But um, I think I liked this movie a lot more than you guys did because <laughs> it, 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 was, resonated. it was honestly terrifying most yeah. of the time. <laughs> she makes it to her apartment and she locks the door behind her. The man who followed her home steps across the street to a phone booth and calls the apartment just as she's sitting down to watch the 1977 horror film Shockwaves from the same director, Ken Whiterhorn. Here's the premise according to IMDb. Visitors to a remote island discover that a reclusive Nazi commandant has been breeding a group of zombie soldiers. So it's actually an, an early Nazi zombie film. What year was it? 77. Okay, so we got a little while before we might hit that one in our 70s reviews. Maybe. <laughs> when she answers the phone, he leaves the typical serial killer message, Hello. heavy breathing. <sighs> Is someone there? Is that you, Debbie? Is this somebody's idea of a bloody joke? (laughs) Who the fuck is there? I have to admit, I wasn't expecting this F-bomb here, but it felt surprisingly accurate to the situation. Mm. I want to know how... So, like, is he casing these ladies? Yeah. That was my Because he would have to know that she works at this place, she lives at this place, and this is her phone number, and this is her schedule. Well, apparently, you know, in 1980, it was much easier to get someone's phone number if you wanted it. You just had to pay attention to what their name was in the bar, and then call a phone number and say, hey, what's that person's number? And they would give it to you. Yeah. Because we see someone do that later in this movie. And I think probably a lot more people were in the phone book back in those days. That's true. And uh, the phone book probably had your address back then, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously. Terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, I mean, that's how the Terminator did it. Yeah. Uh, but when I, when I was first watching this and he started, because he's using like a weird voice when right. he's on the phone. And I thought he said, Daddy? Is that you, Daddy? <laughs> and I was like, is that you, Daddy? I was like, oh, man, this guy's really sick. <laughs> Yeah, and then he tells his dad that he's not wearing a bra today (laughs) because he noticed when he was at the bar probably watching her that she wasn't wearing a bra, and so she thinks that someone's watching her through her apartment windows when he says that. She hangs up, and he immediately calls back. Debbie. Debbie? I know you're not wearing a bra, Debbie. (laughs) 
She hangs up and he calls back a third time. I'm gonna fuck you, Debbie. <laughs> fuck you, bitch. <laughs> bitch. Well, I, I wouldn't pick up the phone after the first time that I hung up on it. Yeah. Like if the phone rang again, I'd be going yoink to the plug and just not answering it. Also, call somebody. I mean, right. if the police aren't going to take you seriously, at least call another person, another friend, another somebody to be like, I'm getting obscene phone calls and it seems like he can see me or has seen me or knows where Which I am. Which is exactly what she does yeah. right here. Um, the score comes in real loud and it's very repetitive, but it's also extremely familiar to me. The only other film that we've covered from this composer was Don't Go in the House. And I checked it and they, they sound similar, but I don't think that's what I was reminded of. Here's Eyes of a Stranger. And here's Don't Go in the House. But to me, it actually sounds more like Ennio Morricone's score to Hateful Eight. So here's that. Amazingly, she bothers to answer the phone a fourth time before calling the police, but the cop who answers says that they've been getting these calls all night because everyone's watching the news story and they're doing copycat phone calls to scare people because they think it's funny. The cop says they'll send someone by in the morning to take a report and that if it keeps happening, they'll put a tap on her line. Well, he also says, did he threaten you? And she goes, he says things. Yeah. It's like, I, no, I he said, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he said some things. And he said some things, not only that he's going to kill me, but implies that he's sees me or has seen me this yeah. evening. Yeah. <laughs> I think she does make the point that he's, he, he made her feel like he was watching her. But, yeah, she doesn't make it well. <laughs> right, that's true. That's when you call in a fake fire. Or you set your apartment on fire <laughs> and call in a real fire. Yeah. No, you set your neighbor's apartment on fire. <laughs> Of your apartment complex. <laughs> if you're arrested for arson, the murderer can't kill you. <laughs> she goes to brush her teeth in the bathroom when suddenly a silhouette fills the door frame behind her. She turns to the bathroom window and closes it. She seems to sense a presence in the apartment and moves around turning on lights for a while. She arms herself with a butcher knife before opening a closet door. But suddenly there's a knock at her front door and... Once her boyfriend Jeff identifies himself, she moves to unlock it. He leans in with his creepy translucent face mask that just kind of alters your features in an inhuman way. It's a very bizarre looking mask. But he says a customer left it in his cab today when she asks what he's fucking doing with it. He takes the butcher knife away from her and she begs to stay the night at his apartment since she's so creeped out here. She goes to pack an overnight bag when Jeff sits down on the couch. He watches more of Shockwave's until the closet door opens behind him and someone sneaks up with a butcher knife and slices his head clean off. Which, I don't know. Like, trying to trying to get to the, through that bone. You'd have to swing it much harder and faster than yeah. the person is clearly doing in this. We're seeing it in the reflection of a fish tank and this person would have to do like a double spin to get going fast enough to slice the head off like that. I also think it's weird that people just have 
butcher knives laying around. Like, I don't own one, but, like, I guess some people do. But if you do, do you just leave it on your counter? And why was it out? Like, I think she had, like, a lemon or a lime on the counter. I'm like, do you cut your fruit with a butcher knife? Well, it's apparently very sharp, so. Uh, I, I will be the first to admit that I do have a butcher knife. And I use it for the wrong purposes yeah. all the time. I've watched him peanut butter a sandwich with, <laughs> with it. a meat cleaver. <laughs> yeah. It spreads so nicely. It's just hard to get into the jar. <laughs> so I chopped the jar in half. That's why I get a whole half of a jar of peanut butter on each slice. Debbie hears a head hit the floor in her living room, and she moves to check on her boyfriend. He's now positioned with his body sticking out from behind the couch, and she assumes it's a joke until she walks around to see that his neck is just spurting blood all over the apartment floor. I was already begging for a shot of the head in the fish tank, and sure enough, we get it. Yeah, and it looks way better than the previous uh, movie that we just mentioned, Don't Go to the House, right? That No, it wasn't Don't Go in the House. Was it not Go in the House? Is it Don't Answer the Phone? No, I don't know. It's, it's not, not a is, don't it's movie. It's not a don't movie. Uh, it's the Tom, not Tom Hanks one. It is yes, the Tom it is Hanks the Tom one. Hanks one. Um, shoot, what was he that He knows one when called? you're alone? The, he knows you're alone. He knows oh, you're alone. There yeah. you go. It's easy when you're sleeping. <laughs> but yeah, this but one looks a lot a better than that movie. one. <laughs> That's what happens when you hire Tom Savini. You're going to get better effects. Uh, this is Tom Savini because it's Georgetown Productions, so they just okay. brought him over from Friday the 13th. Just he always me. has a couple of heads laying around. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that this neck is the same neck that we've already seen again in Maniac since yeah. it was used in Friday the 13th. But apparently he did what I said they should have done in He Knows You're Alone, which is hide the actor's body in the hollowed out furniture under the tank and actually have the real actor's head in the water. They had crew members on standby with a hammer to destroy the tank and a vacuum to clear the water if there was any kind of an emergency. But there was no emergency, so they just let him drown. <laughs> oh, I don't know what happened. He probably died. <laughs> That's a wrap on Jeff, everybody! They're <laughs> just clapping as he's choking to death. <laughs> Suddenly, the attacker is right behind her and starts tearing her clothes off. He throws her down on the bed and slaps her around for a while. He removes his belt to choke her with it, and we cut across town to Jane Harris, that news anchor, watching the same movie, Shockwaves on Television. She is suddenly tackled against her bed and struggles against her attacker for a moment until the camera holds on their hands and we see their fingers interlocking and realize this is a consensual situation. Jane is here with her boyfriend but suddenly realizes what time it is and gets up to leave. He tries to talk her into moving in, into his apartment, and they both speak in annoying legal jargon for a while because I guess he's an attorney. <laughs> But they have like eight lines back and forth where they make a pun about courtroom talk. I'm going to hold you in contempt. <laughs> I'm going to hold you dot 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 in contempt. <laughs> this sounds like you're pretending to love someone. But see, like, but the obvious line, the obvious line was going to be, come on, counselor, aren't you going to get me off? Ah, but like, instead they're just like, yeah. uh, the courtroom is adjourned. <laughs> <laughs> and then they leave. <laughs> five minute recess how do you feel about tampering with the witness <laughs> <laughs> i'll get it <laughs> she reminds him that having her sister living with her complicates things and she's not ready to move her sister into a new situation she warns her boyfriend that living with her sister is difficult and that he would come to resent her and she's not ready for that when she gets home, she parks in an underground structure when a second car pulls in right after her. 
The driver gets out and she watches quietly as he stands up and changes from one messy shirt into a clean one. It's not obviously a bloodstain, but she seems convinced and the man does look around very suspiciously as he changes his clothes. Before she heads upstairs, he dumps something into a trash can, making sure to put it under some newspapers. And insanely, she doesn't go to retrieve whatever he put right? in the trash can. That was what yeah. I was thinking instantly. I'm like, he looks so suspicious. Do you not just go and... I mean, even if you... Like, it's a gross thing that you don't want. But, like, if you have any thought that this yeah. could be suspicious, pull it out and tuck it in the corner of the garage somewhere and just be like, hey, police... He you put know, something check, in here. Check this out. I, I I pulled this thing out of the trash, and and he had stuck it in here. But if you're that suspicious of the guy, like she seems to be moving forward, then she should have looked under the newspaper. Even if it turns out, oh, it's just he shit himself at work, and he <laughs> threw his underwear in the trash can. Like so many of us have done. <laughs> Is that what you put in the trash can here? Check the trash can every time you pass by now. <laughs> The next day, we see a young blind girl step out onto the balcony of a beachfront property. She claps her hands to call a dog to her. She feels her way to the kitchen and starts making herself some toast. Jane enters and turns on the radio to listen to a news broadcast about new killings attributed to the man that she's been reporting on at night. She speaks with sign language to her sister, meaning that Tracy is not only blind but also deaf. Tracy asks why she seems concerned, and Jane says it's nothing when someone rings the doorbell. It's her boyfriend, David, and it's his first time meeting her sister, Tracy. Tracy offers to make David a cup of coffee and then carries a laundry bin out into the hall. Tracy does the laundry, among other things. We cut back to Jane at work, reporting on the killer again. Co-anchor Roger mentions how many men are assigned to the case, and again she interrupts him to indicate that it's too late for so many women. In the control room, we see people behind the scenes are upset that Jane keeps going off script. Uh-oh. There she goes again. Um, one thing I have about her report is that she talks about like the the couple have been murdered, and she says, ironically, the police showed up the next morning. It's not it's not ironic. They said they were coming. Right. Like it's it's not it's, it's not any definition of ironic. Yeah. After work, Jane follows a school bus to a local elementary school. She watches kids unload into the campus, and has a flashback to her youth at the same school. Jane waits for her younger sister to board the school bus and the creepy guy parked across the street from the school follows it away from the campus. At home, Jane makes her sister wait outside while she goes into the house with a friend, and the same car pulls up. Jane's words to her sister ring repeatedly in her head. Tracy, you stay here. The car pulls up in front of Tracy, and the driver pushes open the door to let her into the car. Jane is woken from her flashback by the honking of the school bus, and we see her pulling into the structure at home again. She walks across the structure to look into the car she suspects belongs to the killer. She looks down into the trash can that she should have checked yesterday, and it's empty now. She makes a note of the parking space number that the suspect's car is in, and then calls building management to lie that she accidentally bumped the car, and she needs the driver's information so she can repay him for the damage. They freely give her the information that it's Mr. Stanley Herbert's space, and that he lives at 1204 in the North Tower. She realizes that it's an apartment she can see out of her window. We cut to Mr. Herbert leaving his apartment and walking down to his car. We cut across town where a woman at a typewriter is just finishing her workday and the phone on her desk rings. She picks it up and it seems like there's no one there. When she picks it up the second time, it's the prank call killer again. Hello? Is that you, Annette? <laughs> Look, why don't you go stick it in your ear and then go jump in the bay? I'm gonna stick it 
so I had like now I was having questions about how he's targeting these women uh, because you know the one at the bar is like okay like it's there's a lot of guys going in and out of this bar and it could right. be any one of these guys potentially um, this woman seems like it's a very personal choice because how does he know how is he aware of this woman how did he how did he select this woman as a target how is it related to anything um, and I don't know if it, it's just they're all random. I think they are um, random, but I mean, he obviously knew her name before. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so, I, I it's something that's never explained. Yeah, there, there's no there's no revealed pattern to these killings, and maybe that's the more terrifying thing to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the amount of research that he had to do on all of these people, uh, I wonder if it was research or if he was just these are just women who were in his life that he made a list of. Mm. that he met in different places over the course of his life and he decided that this was the list of people he was going to attack. Right, because how did he select this law firm and how did he know that this woman works late and would is often left there alone unless he's following her for an extended amount of time? And what's more, he has the phone number to reach the extension on her desk and also the emergency phone in the elevator. Yeah. Meaning he's been in this building and opened the panel in the elevator right. before. And... Well, something's going to happen in the film a little bit later that really pissed me off, uh, and we'll get there when we get there. But because yeah. um, I can't explain, th- I can't explain it right now without spoilers. Yeah. Um, so just remember that I am very mad. <laughs> I think you'll remember when we get there. All right. <laughs> she starts to leave the office when the phone rings a third time, and when she answers, the killer plays for her this weird chimey song. It sounds like a music box. When the phone rings a fourth time, she calls her friend Susan for help. She asks Susan if she can come over, and Susan says sure. Somehow, the phone in the elevator rings on her way out of the building. She backs away from the phone sobbing, but manages not to answer it, I think. We just see her coming out of the elevator later, but I don't think she answered it. I mean, okay, so he has to be in a position to be able to see her if she's at her desk versus going to the Mm -hmm. elevator and but still has to be at a phone so yeah. it just it yeah. seemed, logistically this seems really tricky unless he just called the desk and she didn't answer and he's like well i'll call the elevator keep answering so she must be in the elevator uh, also the logistics of the thing that makes the music later on is like wait what <laughs> yeah well the other thing that's weird i think in 1980 people were just less able to not answer a phone when it rang <laughs> now now i'm like i'm not answering unless yeah. i'm expecting you to call me because <laughs> I, I think now like I, if i could you know I, I i barely ever answer my phone it rings all day and i barely ever answer it yeah <laughs> it's basically just you and it's only because i know it's you if i didn't know it was you i would let everyone leave messages and that's why you've never been fired from a job exactly because <laughs> they can't reach me i got 12 jobs right now never been technically fired <laughs> When she gets to her car, the killer appears behind her in the car before she can get it started and drags her over the chairs into the back seat. The horn honks randomly as she kicks at it, but then it continues honking a little bit after her legs were even pointed in the horn's direction. Like, some of it corresponds definitely with kicks and the rest of it's just like, the sound effects guy went a little nuts. (laughs) But again, logistically, so he had to be by a phone Mm -hmm. and then after she didn't answer a couple of calls went and hidden her car he's that good yeah i guess i guess he's just has faith that she's heading there and didn't go somewhere else (laughs) 
We cut across town back to Jane's building, where she's sitting by the pool as Tracy swims laps. David arrives, and she tells him all about her suspect, Mr. Herbert. She says she saw him changing in the parking structure, and that he wasn't wearing a belt, which I didn't notice. Uh, but that matches the M.O. of the killer who leaves his belt wrapped around the necks of his victims. Well, you would not be a good witness. Oh, I agree. 100%. <laughs> Terrible witness. Who said that? Could you describe a person? Uh, maybe short hair? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely had hair. Or bald. That is known as circumstantial evidence. Look, if the police went around arresting everybody who wasn't wearing a belt, they'd run out of space in no time. We cut to, I thought, a beach somewhere, but I guess it's a gravel pit, they call it. Well, um, uh, they have a line. There's, there's, again, this is part of my building of this, of this movie. Uh, she, they talk about, like, being safe, and she goes, no one's really safe. You know that. Right. And, and it, hel- it holds on him as, like, yes, he does know that. Yeah. Uh, we'll come back to that. You, are we talking about what? red herrings here? Yes, we're talking about red herrings, and I setting up David as a red. Herring. I was said, I was like, oh, they're setting up David as a red herring. They did. That's what I thought that they were doing with the targeting of the person in the law firm, uh, because he's a lawyer. Oh. And and but then that gets ruined in this next scene, and I was so you freaking mad. I bet you that might be actually part of the transition between. A, a thriller and a slasher because I, I think so if the, it was a I think thriller the, you want a red herring if it's a slasher you don't give a shit because you know who the guy is mm-hmm. the whole gravel scene was was added on it, the, I don't think this whole scene was was in the movie the first version of the movie yeah but that that makes that makes a lot of sense though because then they started revealing who the killer was immediately and yeah. now you don't need a red herring so they cut all that shit out but there's still a couple people that I felt like were red herrings <laughs> one was was david the the boyfriend but one was george the co-anchor <laughs> i felt like there was there were moments that here and there where i was like are they trying to paint him as like uncaring because she has to keep interrupting him with points about the story and and uh except she's being super unprofessional yeah like you don't just go off on this like on the news without you know the police asking you to do something about it because you could cause problems for the case. It's funny, too, because she knows she's not supposed to do it because every time she fucks up, she's like, oh, I really screwed up at work today. Like, yeah. I totally went off script again, and they're, they're going to fire me if I keep doing this. But I, And I don't know what a gravel pit is, but apparently he's dumping Annette's body in a gravel pit somewhere. I thought it, it looked to me just like a beach. Well, because there's a couple like making out. Yeah. Like, why are there? Why is there a couple in a car making out in a gravel pit? Okay. See, this is the problem. You guys grew up near the ocean, <laughs> where this movie takes place. <laughs> but I'm just saying, if you grow up in the middle of nowhere, like many of us did, there's things like quarries and gravel yeah. pits. No, and I that's, get that. That's the romantic lookout point. <laughs> but it's like, if this whole film takes place in Miami, and we've already been on a beach a couple times, just. Have this be a beach. No, There's no reason that he's not dumping no, a body totally at a beach. I'm totally with you. I'm just saying gravel pits are a thing. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just I just thought it was so weird that it was like they made it, they even lit it to look like a beach. Yeah. And yeah. then the next day on the news, they're like, oh, a body was found in a gravel pit. And it's like, oh, well, then why was there a couple making out of the car there? And but why, anyway. And why was the ground so much loose sand? Yeah. But uh, he dumps Annette's body, just throws it in dirt. <laughs> And then when he tries to drive away, the car won't start because his tires are just spinning in the sand, which annoys 
these this couple that's necking in their car and the guy is really frustrated because he keeps hearing this the tire spin (laughs) it's like this fucking idiot doesn't know how to drive (laughs) it's really killing my boner yeah (laughs) (laughs) so he walks over to to help get the car out of the sand and when the killer rolls down his window the guy offers to help and then he gets knifed in the neck immediately that's what he gets for necking yeah yeah or for sticking his neck out there you go uh the good Samaritan stumbles back to his own car where he bleeds all over the passenger side window, terrifying his girlfriend and scaring her across the car to the driver's seat where the killer grabs her by the hair and then slits her throat with the same blade that he stabbed her boyfriend in the neck with. We cut back inside the car of the victims for this long, gratuitous shot of the woman choking on her own blood. I felt like this was completely unnecessary. Unless, like, they were about to show us her surviving the attack. Yeah. Which they kind of made it look like. They're like, oh, slowly pushing in on this woman and she starts breathing again. And then she's aspirating on her blood and that's the end of it. She's dead. Uh, this is this is the part that made me mad because they clearly shows Stanley Herbert. Right, yes. You, you, you see him right there with the knife plain as day and then that's that's the big reveals like i i didn't want to know this information i wanted to 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 doubt i wanted yeah. to doubt her story for a little right. bit because you wanted it to be a thriller yeah but i also think that it's important that well we'll get there we'll get there later but um there's something that happens later that i think we should know that she has the right person before the conversation happens we cut back to jane's building where she pulls in at night with tracy and their dog in the car and she puts the dog leash in Tracy's hand and taps out a message to her, probably indicating that she can just follow the dog upstairs. She moves across the lot again to inspect the killer's car and sees that the tires are completely muddied in beach sand, but we'll call it gravel. We'll pretend it's gravel. <laughs> she starts to wipe some off with her hand, and we cut to later that night where she seems to be having nightmares. We get another flashback as a medical team carries a younger Tracy on a gurney away from the banks of a river up to an ambulance. Later, young Jane visits her in a hospital. Over the flashback, we hear a doctor telling her parents that her eyes and ears are perfectly functional from a medical standpoint and that her deafness and blindness appear to be entirely psychological. Yeah, uh, that's the only way I can think to describe it, especially what happens later. Yeah. What's wrong with her? We have conclusive evidence that the brain has not been damaged. Oh, thank God. Then why can't she see or hear? We're really not sure. That's my baby, Doctor. You've got to do something. Jane wakes up shouting her sister's name, which would do no good. And then she goes to check on her in her bed. The next day, Jane is brushing her teeth in the morning when her phone rings, and it's Roger, her co-anchor, calling to let her know that there was another killing last night. And this is where I started to think, like, oh, is Roger in on this? Like, Mm -hmm. what's going on here? But but her her reaction is is the weirdest reaction she i i wrote it down as she uh she finds out there was another murder and she reacts like she missed a, an opportunity for free ice cream yeah she goes oh when <laughs> yeah <laughs> she's like not the right emotion <laughs> roger tells her that the victim was found in a gravel pit and that there were two other murders nearby so three murders in a gravel pit to say that there were two yeah there there were a woman was killed also a man and another woman were killed (laughs) 10 feet away so three people were killed on a related note more murders (laughs) yeah uh she rushes down to the parking lot to check the suspect's car again and all the dirt's gone 
He washed his car? What? Back in her apartment, she calls information for a phone number to contact Mr. Stanley Herbert. She calls Herbert and lets it ring three times before hanging up. She steps out onto the balcony and she sees the suspect's car leaving the building. She finds a vending machine on the property and she jams some gum in the coin slot. And then she goes to visit the maintenance man and says, hey, the drink machine's broken again. Like she does this all the time for free drinks or some yeah. shit. But uh, she also needed him out of the room because apparently she steals keys to other people's apartments all the time also. Because what the guy does is he opens up a cabinet with the keys to fix the machine, but it also has all the keys to all the other apartments in the tower. And he leaves it open while he goes to fix the machine with her in his room. She moves directly to his apartment with the key as she starts walking around it looking for clues inside. See, what bothers me about the key cabinet is, I mean, obviously they probably have the guy had trust her like enough like it's like oh i'll be right back yeah but if you have a key cabinet like that with a master key for every apartment which is perfectly understandable i would hope that it would be a little bit more secure but i would also have it encoded so that even even if just by looking at the key it wouldn't tell you the apartment number you would right. have to understand that this yeah. this code on this key corresponds to something and unless you know what it is so that even if someone did break in looking for a specific key right they wouldn't be able to find it but we saw uh, Sinatra do this trick uh, last year. Do you remember what movie that was? Oh, God damn it. What is the name of that one? Something about the devil? Close. What is the devil like for you to do? Oh, it's Deadly Sin. Deadly the, Sins? The first Deadly Sin. First Deadly Sin. Yeah, there you go. Which we decided there's no proper numerical order to the sins. <laughs> she hears a cuckoo clock in his apartment and she follows the sound to his bedroom. Downstairs, we see Mr. Herbert is returning with groceries and dry cleaning. That was extremely fast. Yeah. He's been gone maybe 10 minutes. The phone rings in his apartment, startling Jane, and she moves to dig through the man's closet where she just finds boxes overflowing with pornography. Does she actually see what's in the boxes, though? Because they're above her head. No, she doesn't pull them down, but from the camera angle, we see the high yeah. angle. We see yeah. that, that it's full of porn. You remember the last film that there was a bunch of boxes of porn on a high shelf? Cruising? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was all the gay porn that he was like, oh, you should sell that to the landlady. Yeah. In the same closet, she finds his shoes covered in beach sand, a.k.a. gravel, and she takes one. But just as she grabs it, she can hear him coming into the apartment. I feel like if you're going to take one, take two. Right. <laughs> take them both. just lose a yeah. shoe. He's, he's going to notice they're gone if there's only one gone. But also, this doesn't go with his M.O. of throwing away your clothing evidence. Yeah. Is that one of his MOs? Well, well he, he, he did it with the shirt. He did it with the shirt. Why wouldn't he do it with his shoes? Like, he seemed to shoes plan ahead. He seemed to plan ahead enough to have another shirt, you know. Yeah. I think he'd have another pair of shoes. I well, also having feel a like... shirt covered in blood is a little more suspicious than having sandy shoes. Yeah. Especially walked, in Florida. <laughs> I've walked around with sandy shoes before, and nobody knows I'm a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, also, at this point in the films, like, she's super suspicious of him. So when she sees his muddy car... Why didn't she just wipe some of the mud off and, again, save it so she didn't even have to go into his apartment to yeah. get a shoe? <laughs> she was desperate to go into his apartment, though. And she knew exactly how to do it. I mean, she was in it within 20 minutes of when she thought about it. We follow Mr. Herbert into his bedroom where he hangs up his dry cleaning in the closet, but Jane's not there anymore. The curtains spanning the doorway to his balcony are billowing into the room, and he steps outside. We see in an insert that Jane is actually dangling from his balcony railing, just as he leans over the edge to find her, she swings herself onto the balcony one floor down. 
She rushes through the apartment past a couple eating breakfast. And amazingly, the husband doesn't get in trouble for this. I assumed it was going to be one <laughs> yeah. of those scenes where well, the lady's like, who been. the hell was that? <laughs> well, the, the woman points at her, too. And I, and I thought for sure she was going to say, hey, that's the woman from TV. And, and I thought that that was going to come back to bite her in the ass. Because uh, she's so recognizable. Well, yeah, like like that Herbert would run into, like, like she would go upstairs and say, "Hey, you know that woman from TV was on our balcony, right. like you know, then came must have come from your apartment, like like something like that." That would have been the clue to lead her, and not the thing that happens later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We cut to an editing bay where Jane is rewatching an interview she did with Annette's friend Susan. Susan tells Jane about Annette's comment about the music box. And Jane asks her editor if a cuckoo clock can play music or if it just goes cuckoo, which he doesn't have an answer for her. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, what a weird ass question. Well, but the fact that neither of them know that clocks can make music is yeah. weird. <laughs> Jane rushes into a movie theater 20 minutes late for a date with Dave. In the lobby, we see a poster for Dawn of the Dead, another of Tom Savini's films. During the movie, she shares with Dave the clue that she collected from inside Mr. Herbert's apartment, and the people around them repeatedly shush her for talking. She admits that she broke in, and they leave the theater together. Apparently, she expected him to just take this shoe directly to the authorities, but he reminds her that she's tainted the chain of evidence, first of all. Yeah. And second of all, she has no indisputable proof that this guy is even the killer. Well, has it ever occurred to you that your Mr. Herbert just may be innocent? No. <laughs> When Jane gets back to her apartment, it seems she's done some shopping. She pulls out a snub-nosed handgun and a box of bullets. Janie's got a gun. <laughs> You've been waiting for that one. Richard knows the song. <laughs> he knows it from the movie 10 Things I Hate About You. Well, the, no, the parody of Not Another oh, Teen Movie. Oh, Not Another Teen Movie. That's yeah. what it was. <laughs> that is such a great scene. <laughs> Janie's got a gun. Because <laughs> you know the scene in 10 Things I Hate About You where Heath Ledger sings to her from the stands yeah. outside the football game? Well, in, in Not Another Teen Movie, the girl's name is Janie. And so the only song with Janie in it is, Janie's got a good... And, and like they tackle the girl to the field. That's <laughs> uh, funny. She loads the gun and stuffs it in her underwear drawer before picking up her phone to prank call Mr. Herbert. She calls him a phone freak and asks how it feels to have the tables turned. And he hangs up on her. And again, doesn't admit to anything, um, acts like like he might even be totally innocent or surprised. I wasn't paying attention when they showed his face the first time I watched it through, oh. and I thought she had the wrong guy because he's selling <laughs> okay. it that he yeah. that yeah. he's not the killer. He's he, the whole time he's just like, I think you have the wrong number. I don't know what you're talking about. Meanwhile, she's not affecting her voice in any way. Mm -hmm. She's just full on. Hi, I'm Jane, and I'm on the news every night. You at least get a kazoo and put a kazoo in your mouth. Yeah. Because they're the delicious. you committed murder. <laughs> <laughs> Is now, Richard but, the kazoo killer? <laughs> but now they have those damned reverse kazoo apps that you can yeah. <laughs> distort the voice back from the normal. I do that just so I don't have to hear kazoos in my day. <laughs> just keep it going. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> it's just people going hmm, hmm. <laughs> there's a lot of thinking going on around me audible thoughts <laughs> what sound would you make <laughs> with a kazoo if you didn't have the kazoo yeah I get it you don't have to spell it out for me <laughs> it's okay I don't get it <laughs> I don't know what's going on anymore uh, oh my god 
She calls back again, and after some tortured hesitation, he answers again, just as the victims have done so far, because in 1981, you can't not answer the phone. <laughs> it could be an emergency. That's the sequel to Don't Answer the Phone. Yeah, you can't Don't not, not answer. answer the phone. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. It's a double negative. She tells him to turn himself in, and he claims not to know what she's talking about. She calls him back a third time, and he answers. God damn it, I had enough of this crap! Stop calling me! Stop calling me! I wanted this to not be her. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was her. Make your dry cleaning's ready. No, I just picked that up. God damn it! It's just Jane again fucking with him. <laughs> she hangs up on him a third time, and then has what looks like a tiny orgasm in her apartment. <laughs> Did you notice that? <laughs> She, she hangs up the phone and she leans back and goes. <sighs> and it's like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> like, are you getting off on this the same way he does? This is really weird. Like, I like the whole hunter becomes the hunted. And I think that it was important before this moment to show that he was the killer so that you you understand he's getting a taste of his own medicine. Yeah. This is just as terrifying for him as the other calls were for the other people. Yeah. But. It's weird to me that she seems to be getting off on this call. Like, she really likes doing this. That night, Mr. Herbert follows a woman down the street in his car. We get a flashback of him in a strip club observing this woman dance, and then we see him following her to her apartment in the present. So I feel like the film could have benefited from these kind of flashbacks for each of his victims. Like, yeah. the woman that he called in the office, we could see what his yeah. interactions were with this woman beforehand. Well, yeah, again, because... They talk about all the other killings that he's done already before the one that we witnessed. Right. That this isn't the first one. So all the killings that we've seen so far have been, two of them have been from strip club bars. Right. And and then one outlier of this law firm person. Wait, did the first girl work at a strip club bar? I knew it was a bar. Well, there was a, there was a woman topless dancing. Oh, okay. I didn't remember uh, that. So, I mean, I, will, I won't say that she was, in fact, a stripper, but she worked at that club maybe the law firm was a was a topless law firm oh, okay the, the, that was who represented the <laughs> it was it was after hours so we don't know yeah uh and so it just seems odd that with this the law firm thing like again I, that might play into the red herring aspect of it um but again it's pointless at this point so How, it's just, why why are dancers and maids the only two services that you can get topless people to provide you can get topless maids yeah, you've never seen that van there's like a van. I see it all over LA. It says topless, topless maids. Yeah. That's the thing. I, I Only in California. I did not know that. But I mean, like there should be like, like a Hooters type drive through place, but that's just, you know, 18 and up. Right. That should be a thing. What? <laughs> <laughs> like you pick up your burger and fries in a drive through and they just topless as they hand them to you. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be near a fryer topless. <laughs> <laughs> Well, then you don't have to work there. <laughs> I won't. Some of us do. <laughs> what? Want to be near Friar Topless? That's my thing. <laughs> <laughs> Where the fuck was I? <laughs> the woman he followed home hops in her shower, and as she's scrubbing herself, she notices his face pressed against the glass of her shower store. Shower store? She owns a <laughs> store that sells showers. <laughs> She sells showers by the seashore. <laughs> by the shower store. <laughs> she notices his face pressed against the glass and begins to scream. At home later, Mr. Herbert is watching Jane's latest broadcast about the killings, and she reuses the phrase phone freak from her prank call earlier. Together with 
Recognizing her voice blatantly, he understands exactly who called him. The next day, Tracy heads out on the balcony to water some plants, and Mr. Herbert watches from his own balcony. We flash forward 12 hours. So, clearly, he also made inquiries as to where she lives. Right, yes, I think so. Uh, Jane's getting home from work, and she checks in on Tracy reading Braille from a book in her room, and she gives her a kiss. Jane calls Mr. Herbert's apartment again, but it just rings out. We see him parking his car at a curb outside, and Jane steps down to the parking structure. Mr. Herbert watches her leave the building. In Jane's apartment, the phone rings while Tracy is feeding the dog, and it's David. He leaves a message indicating that he got the lab test results on the sand on the shoe, and it matches the gravel pit where Annette's body was found. He advises her to stay put and to not do anything stupid until he can get there, and then she can do stupid stuff. <laughs> Tracy claps repeatedly to get the dog's attention, and we cut to the dead dog in the middle of the apartment. She walks right past it on her way to the hallway where she claps again, but the dog doesn't come. She gets some food out of the refrigerator and starts to reheat some leftovers. Suddenly, Mr. Herbert is there in the kitchen with her, but because she's deaf and blind, she has no idea how close he's getting. She positions things on the counter in front of her, and he keeps moving them around to see how she reacts. And See, I, I don't believe this scene. I think she would know immediately as soon as something yeah. wasn't where she put it. I, I think you would feel the heat of somebody... And certainly you would be able to smell Yeah, this something. guy looks like he has an odor. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to go that far. But I mean, just, yeah, a, a different type of laundry detergent, something. You're gonna, there's going to be other tells yeah. uh, other than, than just not being able to see or hear him. But very quickly she does realize she's being toyed with. And she tries to run out of the apartment when she crashes directly into Mr. Herbert in the doorway. She feels his face to recognize that he's a stranger and he pulls her closer to give her a big kiss. She runs to the kitchen and grabs a large knife to defend herself, but he yanks it out of her hand before feeling her up against the stove. But the way he grabs it, it's like he grabs the blade of it yeah. and pulls it away from her hand. It's like, that's not the way to do yeah, that. I, yeah, I mean, she's she clearly can't see you coming. So just, just grab, go for the handle. Yeah, just grab her arm and pull it out of her hand. Yeah, but instead he grabs it by the blade and wrenches it out of her hands. She reaches back and grabs a hot pot of coffee and throws it in his face to get away. Nice. And that, that and and like what really stung me about this was this is like a 1980s coffee pot where that that coffee's probably like 190 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a half gallon of it. Yeah. <laughs> he freaks out and she runs off. In the other tower of this apartment building, Jane is sneaking into his apartment again. I have no idea what she could possibly be looking for this time, but she moves directly into the bedroom. And she's fiddling with the cuckoo clock. She moves the hour hand up to the top and the cuckoo song plays. And she recognizes it as a, sort of a music box chimey song that Susan uh, commented on. Which means that he had the cuckoo clock with him in the car or when he was making the phone call. Yeah, so on just, location. He's just at a phone booth with this cuckoo clock in his <laughs> Maybe arms. he has a few. He says it's their song. It's weird. It is weird. They're yeah. also like he starts talking before the song is playing, but there was no cuckoo before the song is playing. So like oh, that's true. So he disabled the cuckoo with the clock that he's carrying with him. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, problems here. <laughs> Mr. Herbert keeps wandering around the apartment looking for Tracy. He eventually finds her in a closet and he throws her down on Jane's bed. He tears her shirt open and she starts screaming at him. Suddenly, in her POV, we can see the vague outline of him above her. 
Tracy manages to make her way to the dresser and collect Jane's handgun. Which, how did she know was there? I think at this point Jane told her, Okay. There's a killer here, and here's where to get a gun if you need it. Because she's been talking about how defenseless her sister was this whole time. I think the only reason to get that gun, other than to attack him yourself, is to give your sister some means of self-defense. See, I feel that there was a missing scene of Tracy doing the laundry and putting laundry away. And finding the and gun. And finding the gun. Well, yeah, because yeah. they make the point that she does the laundry. Yeah, I feel yeah. like there was a deleted scene here. And they do skip forward, like I said, about 12 hours from her out on the balcony watering plants to suddenly it's nighttime in the same room. And it's like, stuff happened between these two shots. Mr. Herbert tries to approach her silently so as to hide himself, but she can see him now, and it's no use. She misses a couple times just because she's a bad shot, but then eventually she gets him through the gut. Harry, you're alive. And you're a terrible, terrible shot. <laughs> he collapses on the bed in front of her, and she touches his wound, and I wanted him to be like, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't do that. Tracy stands and walks through the apartment dazed. She drops the gun in the doorway, and she notices blood on her hands from his wound. She walks into the bathroom and smears her bloody hand on the mirror, and then on her face, and then she puts her bloody fingers in her mouth, <laughs> which is super disgusting, and then she starts to rub them all over her body and her breasts. Out of nowhere, Herbert gets his arms around her and shoves her down on the bathroom counter, but just then, Jane enters the apartment screaming for Tracy. She quickly finds the gun and runs to the bathroom where she puts a bullet directly through Mr. Herbert's forehead, sending him backward through the glass shower door. She hugs Tracy to apologize for leaving her here, and Tracy says her name out loud. Jane is surprised to hear this and leans back before noticing Tracy's eyes looking into hers, like she's doing that, you know, looking back and forth from eyeball to eyeball thing. They cry together, and we fade to Mr. Herbert's John Goodman-looking corpse splayed across the bathtub with blood still dripping out of his forehead hole, which is a cool effect. Yeah, I yeah. don't know how they did that. I think they must be, like, literally dripping blood from above into the wound, mm -hmm. and it's just moving. It's at a speed that we can't see it when it's in the air, but we can see it dripping out of really? his forehead when it's hitting him. I, I don't know. That's my only guess, because I mean, there doesn't there's not room for a prosthetic behind this hole. Yeah, but, well, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is like it, you, would, you would think that they might be running a line to it, but I can't see anything mm -hmm. yeah. in terms of makeup covering up, a, you know, a tiny little tube that's feeding this thing. But it's it's dripping yeah, a it looks good great. amount. It looks great. Yeah. yeah. My, my theory is that it's it's the, the droplets are coming from high enough up that it's out of frame, but not so high that they splatter when they mm -hmm. hit him. And mm -hmm. they're just removing the frames where you can see a droplet in the air mm -hmm. because it's kind of played in slow motion that sort of step-by-step -step slow motion mm -hmm. uh, but that's the end of our film our director here was ken whiterhorn he previously directed shockwaves and king frat or king fucking frat as the poster implies the title is meant to be it's one of those like where there's something blocking the word in the middle mm -hmm. after this he has meatballs part two return of the living dead part two and something called dark tower that he somehow co-directed with trog helmer freddie francis Unrelated to the Stephen King series, though. Writer Ron Kurtz, before this he wrote King Frat, and most of his other credits are Friday the 13th movies, uh, except for Off the Wall in 83 and Never Hike Alone in 2017. He does have a credit on the draft of the first Friday script that I won at that raffle in 2019. Or not a raffle, it was a trivia thing. What yeah, you cheated. I didn't cheat. I just knew the answer. You cheated because you looked up everything about the entire movie. 
that morning. Moments before you walked into that theater. The music was by Richard Einhorn. He was the composer on Shockwaves and Don't Go in the House before this. He also scores The Prowler later this season and later still Blood Rage, that Thanksgiving slasher that we mentioned in our Home Sweet Home review. Oh, I haven't seen Blood Rage yet. Cinematographer Minnie Rojas, which is Spanish for Little Reds. <laughs> uh, this is Minnie's only film. Editor Rick Shane later edits The First Nightmare on Elm Street and eventually Dutch, Theodore Rex, and Pitch Black. Nice. Theodore Rex. Fancy. Uh, Lauren Tews played Jane Harris. This was her first film. She was cruise director Julie McCoy in 199 episodes of The Love Boat. Jennifer Jason Lee was Tracy Harris, the younger sister. This is her first credited feature. She's later in Backdraft, Hudsucker Proxy, The Machinist, Palindromes, and more recently she was Daisy Domergoo in Hateful Eight and Chantel Hutchins in The Twin Peaks Resurrection. I have to imagine that she would have a difficult time watching this film now because at the time her father, Vic Morrow, had not yet been decapitated on the set of the Twilight Zone movie. John DeSanti played Stanley Herbert. He also appeared in director Whiterhorn's King Frat as J.J. Grossout Gumbroski, which makes me think I don't want to watch that movie if there's a character named J.J. Grossout Gumbroski. We'll see him later in 1981 for Hardly Working, Nobody's Perfect, and Absence of Malice. He's also Detective Wickman in The Star Chamber and Gus in Batteries Not Included. Mel Pape played Doctor. Who's the Doctor in here? I remember Doctor. Oh, I guess it's the Doctor who says that she's psychosomatically blind. blind. Um, He was a butler in Caddyshack last year. Herb Goldstein played Elderly Man. He was also in Mako, The Jaws of Death, King Frat, and Super Fuzz. Sonia Zamina played Elderly Woman. Who's the elderly couple in this? Probably the ones whose apartment she ran through. Okay, that woman who was in the apartment... Uh, she was the crazy bag lady from the fun house. Yeah. God is watching you. She also played old lady in a 1985 episode of Miami Vice, which connects her to our next film. Madeline Curtis played a nurse. Uh, this was her first film. Her next title was 12 Years Later, and also Friday the 13th related. Friday the 13th 9, Jason Goes to Hell. I think it's interesting, but I feel like this movie got jumbled up and re-edited a few too many times, and that as a result... A lot of it doesn't work the way that it it should have. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you in terms of story and editing. It's not the strongest, but it it did get me a lot. Like I was definitely sort of on the edge of my seat or, you know, gasping or, you know, Mm -hmm. grabbing my mouth. And I'm like, oh, God, he's coming. He's getting, you know, like it made me really nervous. So uh, I liked it. I, I would have liked it had they not done that reveal early on and it would have given me a chance to suspect other people and to maybe think that maybe she has the wrong guy. I mean, what would it have cost them to just have him keep a mask on or be hidden for yeah, that scene? nothing. It, it, and, and, and give us an opportunity to suspect other people, whether it be the, the co-anchor or my suspicion yeah. was the boyfriend because he worked at a law firm and, and it made no sense for this one person at a law firm to be yeah. targeted. What if the maintenance guy was killing them because the fucking kids kept putting gum in there? <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like thrillers and slashers don't need to be mutually exclusive. Like, I mean, for a lot of slashers, you don't necessarily know who's coming right. for a large portion of the film. So you're saying it could have been like a deus ex machina, like at the last second a new killer shows up? 
that you didn't even expect? No, I'm just saying that it they didn't like you said he could he could have remained anonymous longer right. throughout the film. Yeah, because that makes that like that phone call where she's testing him. No, no, no the the phone call where David's calling about the the sand samples. Right, because you do that slow pan where you get the call and David says, "Yeah, the sand matches," and that's when you see him with her with Tracy yeah. in the apartment. It's like, oh, and it's like crap, who is learning like, this information now? Yeah. yeah, because we already knew it was him, and Tracy can't hear this call. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and also. I, I have this bag of inadmissible evidence that this guy <laughs> killed this, killed these people. Yeah. It's like the police said that we really screwed up and that there's no way to convict him now because you left one shoe in the apartment and he's mm-hmm. probably thrown it out when he realized one got taken. I think that this would have been more interesting as like a psychosexual thriller type thing if they'd have taken out the whole, you know, slicing off a head and stabbing a guy in the neck thing. Or they could have gone the other way with it and made it more of a traditional slasher and just added a few victims and some more gore. But I feel like the way it works right now, it's kind of between genres and it doesn't commit to either one. And and he kills people, like, I guess in too many different ways. Because his, 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 his primary mode of killing seems to be strangulation. Right. Um, but that oh, I guess maybe that only applies to the women, with the exception of the person the 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 couple in the car well that was impromptu yeah that's true. You got to do with what you got yeah um but uh yeah but then going through the trouble of chopping someone's head off and then placing it in the fish tank for dramatic effect uh like because again if you just all you have to do is slit his throat it, it, it was purely for this gross out craziness factor yeah and it wasn't like to taunt this woman like, I mean, maybe it was. Yeah. I mean, he sat there and waited for her to scream before he killed her. Which is dumb. <laughs> <laughs> like, that draws attention to but, you. But, I mean, I think that that fits with his tormenting them with phone calls. Mm. And I also think that there's a certain amount of this where it's like, like, he enjoys almost getting caught. So he, he likes to set off alarms like this and have the woman scream while he's still in the apartment. I still give it a thumbs up. I'm thinking about it. Richard, um, it is a down, but it's 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 a it's on the the middle ground. It just to the to the right of like being an up. Like it just yeah. it's almost made it. It almost made it up, but but it 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 failed failed in the end for me. Um, I mean the rest of this director's filmography makes me think that this was this was a fluke that this was so artistically directed. But I think because it does seem you know, a tad bit smarter than most of these slashers that I'm going to give it a a reluctant, but I'm going to give it a thumbs up. Um, Where's this going? Letterboxd, Richard. Um, I have this at number 20. Uh, So this puts it just below the Funhouse and above the Devil and Max Devlin. All right, Jessica. I have it at nine out of 33. Uh, I have it below Cutter's Way and above the Incredible Shrinking Woman. Okay. Um, I have it in... 23rd out of 33 uh, which puts it just below the devil and max devlin and just above earthbound but i think that's everything for eyes of a stranger if you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us we are vintage video pod on twitter facebook instagram and letterboxd or as i've said before you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year we can also be found at vintagevideopodcast.com we also have a discord now join the 24 7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past present and future at vintagevideopodcast.com slash discord And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Thief.
which IMDB describes like so. An ace safecracker wants to do one last big heist for the mob before going straight. We leave you now with the trailer for Thief. Are you clear? You've been putting down two, three scores a month. You want to put down contract scores all over the country? Working directly for me? I am self-employed. Geisty lice. Just diamonds or cash. Fine. I'll make you a millionaire in four months. I wear $150 slacks. I wear silk shirts. I wear $800 suits. I wear a gold watch. I wear a perfect D flawless three carat ring. I'm a thief. Do you think that I have been waiting for you to come along? You gonna marry her and have some kids? Yes. Hey, I'm talking to you. Hey. Hey, what? What is going on in your life that is so terrific? I'm just, I'm just asking you to be with me. Go. We got a problem. I want my money. We need new partners. We in for ten points. I am the last guy you want to mess with. You get paid what I say. You do what I say. You don't know from one day to the next whether you're going to be killed, go home, or get busted. What's wrong with you? James Caan, Thief.